This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Godlike and immortal, he knows all things. He has the ability to control all of mankind or drive them insane. He lies sleeping in his great sunken city in the deepest dark depths of the Pacific Ocean. To even look upon his form may cost you your sanity. He has lain beneath the waters for eons and will continue to do so until the stars align, whereupon he will awaken and reclaim dominion over the earth. Welcome to Freaky Folklore, the podcast where we discover the horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. Today we are discussing Cthulhu, one of H.P. Lovecraft's most inspiring and terrifying creations. This show is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. Find more terrifying tales at EerieCast.com and be sure to follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcasting service. You can leave us an honest review on iTunes, too. The more we get, the more we grow, and hopefully, the more monsters we can explore. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. I never win anything, that is why I quit going to the casino, and I refuse to buy lottery tickets. I wouldn't say that I have bad luck, I just don't seem to have luck at all. You might say I'm a break-even kind of guy. So I was really surprised when I received a letter in the mail from the Donaldson Blackard Law Firm in New Orleans, stating that I had inherited an estate. At first, I thought it was a scam. The letter read, Dear Arthur Gateland, my name is Harvey Blackard, and I am a partner with Donaldson Blackard Law Firm in New Orleans, Louisiana. I found your contact information through public records while searching for a last name for the brother of my late clients, a business magnate by the name of William Thurston. William Thurston, who lived in New Orleans for over a decade prior to his death, died in a car accident on June 15th of this year, 2022. William Thurston is your brother. Prior to explaining further, I must first make an apology for this unsolicited mail to you. I am conscious that this is certainly not a predictable way of approach to foster a relationship of trust, but because of circumstances and urgency surrounding this claim, I had no other choice. Before the accident, he drew up a will with very specific instructions for his estate to be left to his brother, Arthur W. Gateland. He left a sealed letter in my possession that you are required to read before assuming ownership of his estate. Because of security and personal reasons, he did not disclose the contents of this letter. If you deny or fail to make claim to the inheritance, the estate will be liquidated and made unserviceable with accordance with existing laws. Kindly indicate your responses to this mail either via my office email address, my private email address, or you can also send me a fax for further clarification. 
Kind regards, Harvey Blackard, attorney at law. I thought it had to be a mistake. I had no brother. I was the only child my mother had. I had never known my father. He died before I was born. But I was curious and intrigued by the word estate. So many images went through my mind, ranging from a mansion worth a fortune to a run-down haunted house that needed demolished. I didn't waste any time. I was just as curious about this brother that I didn't know I had and would never get to meet as I was about the letter he left with his attorney. I called Mr. Blackard and confirmed that I was making plans to be there shortly after the 4th of July holiday. Before taking any action to plan my travel, I immediately called my mother. I had so many questions that I hoped she had the answers to. I read the letter to her over the phone and waited patiently through the silence that followed as she gathered her thoughts. Finally, she began to explain who my father had been and that he was not the man she had always told me that he was. She had told me originally that she had met him at a soup kitchen while volunteering during college. She was doing it to earn credit for one of her classes and he was there because he had been homeless when he was younger and wanted to give back. My mom described him as a hard-working young man who had grown up in foster care. He had no family and few friends. They had been dating for three months when he was mugged and stabbed on his way home one evening. A month later, she found out she was pregnant. The man she described to me now was much different. My father had been an archaeologist and a successful writer who had been invited to her school for a lecture. They had met afterwards and shortly began an affair that went on for two weeks until he returned home to his wife and young son. My mother contacted him to tell him when she found out she was pregnant. His reply was a check for a substantial amount. After that, she never heard from him again. I was not sad to never have known a man who never cared to lay eyes on me, but I was still curious. I was even more curious that I had once had a brother. I couldn't help but wonder if he had been anything like me. I caught a flight to New Orleans two weeks later after convincing my best friend to look after the art gallery while I was away. I arrived on Wednesday afternoon, just ahead of a tropical storm that was brewing just off the coast. Meeting Mr. Blackard was surprisingly pleasant. He was a short, stocky man in his mid-fifties who seemed to have a permanent blush. Mr. Blackard handed me the letter that had been sealed since my brother had left it in his possession. I hesitated a moment as I looked at the handwriting that was a close resemblance to my own, and then I gently tore it open. Dear Arthur, if you are reading this, then I am surely dead. First, I want to apologize for not finding you and making your acquaintance. It was something that I had longed to do but had yet to find the time. I will cut the niceties short and get right to business. As you have probably learned by now, we have the same father. Our father, when he passed, left his estate to me. I have no children of my own and wanted to ensure that the estate stayed in the family upon my passing. The estate entails certain things that Mr. Blackard will make you aware of, but I wanted to address a more personal business. The house located at 5705 St. Charles Avenue in New Orleans has been in our family for four generations. We call it Thurston Manor. This house is special for many reasons, but an explanation into this matter is too delicate to be left in this letter. Once you gain possession of the estate and the house, there will be a set of instructions located in the desk drawer of the study in a sealed envelope. 
Follow these instructions and they will lead you to your legacy and destiny. Best regards, William Francis Wayland Thurston. I was intrigued by my brother's letter and maybe a little hurt by my father's lack of acknowledgement up until the end. I was elated to find upon the full reading of the will that I had inherited a small fortune. But there was a stipulation that concerned me. I would have to take up residence in the house on St. Charles Avenue for a minimum of six months during a calendar year. I had my art gallery back home to run and my mother to look after. With the money that I inherited, surely I could find a way to take care of everything. I folded the letter and began to place it back in the envelope when I noticed something else inside. It was an old barrel key. I asked Blackard if he knew what it was for, and he assured me that he had no idea. I tucked the key into my shirt pocket. It must have some importance, and maybe the answer could be found at the house. It was getting dark by the time I arrived at Thurston Manor, but I could still make out the massive size of the place. It was large and imposing with two or three stories, and constructed of stone and wood, with an ornate exterior consisting of steep gable roofs, towers, turrets, and highly decorative woodwork. It had the most eerie look, located on a large lot surrounded by oak trees that were much older than the house. You could easily imagine a scene from a horror movie, with the sunlight just fading from the sky, leaving a deep red hue as a backdrop. Upon entrance, I immediately noticed the dust that had begun to settle on the few pieces of furniture without coverings. I wanted to explore, but the envelope waiting for me in the study called to me. The study was large with high ceilings, the same as they seemed to be through the entire house. The letter was right where William said it would be, lying face up in the desk drawer. I used the silver letter opener that I found next to it to carefully separate the paper without damaging it. There were two pieces of paper inside, one written by William and another that had no signature. The second looked older. The paper was yellowed with age and tattered from use. In my brother's writing, I read the instructions to a secret room that was hidden in the wine cellar. He explained that I would find more answers there. The second letter was very odd and left me more than a little confused. It seemed to be a page from a journal. March 1st, our February 28th according to the International Dateline. The earthquake and storm had come. From Dunedin, the Alert and her noisome crew had darted eagerly forth as if imperiously summoned. And on the other side of the earth, poets and artists had begun to dream of a strange cyclopean city, whilst a young sculptor had molded in his sleep the form of the dreaded Cthulhu. March 23rd. The crew of the Emma landed on an unknown island and left six men dead. And on that date, the dreams of sensitive men assumed a heightened vividness and darkened with dread of a giant monster's malign pursuit. Whilst an architect had gone mad and a sculptor had lapsed suddenly into delirium. And what of this storm of April 2nd? The date on which all dreams of the dank city ceased and Wilcox emerged unharmed from the bondage of a strange fever. What of all this, and of those hints of old Castro about the sunken, starborn old ones and their coming reign, their faithful cult and their mastery of dreams? Was I tottering on the brink of cosmic horrors beyond man's powers to bear? If so, they must be horrors of the mind alone. For in some way the 2nd of April had put a stop to whatever monstrous menace 
had begun its siege of mankind's soul. I was beginning to get this feeling of excitement, the same feeling I get when my friends and I would visit a mystery room where we would have to solve a mystery in a limited amount of time. I loved a good mystery. The wine cellar was my next stop. I had to find this secret room. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. In the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean, entombed within the mysterious stone city of Rillier, sleeps a being of unimaginable power. To even look upon his shape might cost you your sanity. He is Cthulhu. Cthulhu is an entity created by fantasy horror writer H.P. Lovecraft and was introduced in his story The Call of the Cthulhu, first published in the magazine Weird Tales in 1928. Although Cthulhu is just one of many creatures born from Lovecraft's writing, he has a level of notoriety and fame that overshadows the rest. The monster was inspired by the Alfred Lord Tennyson poem The Kraken, which is about an enormous squid that rests at the bottom of the sea. Cthulhu has lain beneath the waters for ages and will continue to do so until the stars align, whereupon he will awaken and reclaim dominion over the earth. Cthulhu made his first official appearance in the short story The Call of Cthulhu, written by Lovecraft in 1926, although no living character in the story ever sets eyes on the actual creature. If you have never read Lovecraft's The Call of the Cthulhu, then you're missing out, but just in case, I will cover the high points to help you understand Cthulhu. The story of The Call of Cthulhu is divided into three chapters each following the story's narrator, Francis Wayland Thurston, as he recounts his discovery of his recently deceased uncle, George Gamel Angel's research. Thurston informs the reader that he is the executor of his late granduncle's estate. Angel had been a professor of languages at Brown University. During his time of work, he had left many notes, and among those Thurston discovers a locked box that contains an odd clay bas-relief and a two-part manuscript entitled Cthulhu Cult. Thurston studies the bas-relief sculpture, which features the outline of a figure that looks like an octopus, dragon, and human combined. He also reads various notes from a mysterious cult in 1926. 
It is at this point that the perspective switches to that of Professor Angel through his left-behind notes. His notes reveal how a sculptor from the Rhode Island School of Design named Henry A. Wilcox once showed up in Angel's office with the sculpture, speaking of strange dreams he had after an earthquake on March 1st. On the night of March 22nd, Wilcox becomes feverish and deliriously imagines Cyclopean cities and a gigantic monster miles high. Angel had also left postscript to the manuscript that proved that Angel started recording the dreams of other participants at this time, finding poets and artists to be the most likely to have experienced the same visions as Wilcox. He also saved news clippings that recorded instances of worldwide hysteria and unrest on March 22nd. The second part of Angel's manuscript shows that he knew the true import of Wilcox's dreams even though Wilcox did not. This document contains Angel's notes from a meeting of the American Archaeological Society in St. Louis in 1908, where a man named John Raymond Legrasse produced a similar statue, obtained in a raid on a voodoo ritual in Louisiana, to a panel of bewildered experts. However, one other expert by the name of William Channing Webb recognized the idol. He claimed to have encountered a similar idol among Intuit rituals in West Greenland. Webb's phonetic transcriptions of these rituals, compared alongside Legrasse's, reveal the phrase, In the house of Rillier, dead Cthulhu waits, dreaming. Legrasse explains to Angel and the others that as a member of the New Orleans police the previous year, he was commissioned with responding to reports of kidnapping and murder in a rural outpost in the southern Louisiana swamp. Locals refused to lead the way but instead directed the policemen into an area of the swamp widely considered to be dangerous and cursed, where they heard chanting and tom-toms. The policemen find a mass voodoo ritual, with dozens of men dancing among burning human remains, arranged around an eight-foot statue of the creature from Wilcox's bas-relief. Out of the many cultists that are apprehended, Legrasse finds the testimony of a lucid elder named Old Castro most riveting. Old Castro talks about old ones of interstellar origins that once resided in a great cyclopean city and which now slumber beneath the oceans, waiting to be activated by a chance confluence of astrological and human affairs. Thurston, after reading this document from the locked box, locates Wilcox, the sculptor his uncle had spoke to and who had made the bas-relief from his dreams. He finds Wilcox as a successful decadent sculptor who still remembers the word Cthulhu from his dreams. After questioning Wilcox, Thurston discovers that even though his uncle had probed the man's dreams, he had never explained the reason for the study. Without explaining his uncle's motives further, he draws the story of the dreams out of Wilcox and is thoroughly convinced of his absolute sincerity. He also found that Wilcox knew nothing of the hidden cult. Thurston next travels to Louisiana and interviews the remaining prisoners from Legrasse's raid, and becomes convinced that this far-flung, secretive belief system is of genuine anthropological note. He also openly wonders whether knowing too much about it may have led to his granduncle's death, and whether it will eventually lead to his own. Months later, Thurston attempts to forget his Cthulhu cult investigation, until he finds a Sydney Bulletin article in a museum at Patterson, New Jersey, that features a photograph of the same stone idol from Wilcox's dreams, 
The article reports that near New Zealand on April 18, 1925, a freighter named Vigilant had towed in a disabled yacht named The Alert, with one corpse and one survivor aboard. The survivor had been in possession of the idol. The survivor, named Gustav Johansson, claims that they approached The Alert on his ship, the Emma, at which point the Emma was ordered to turn back and subsequently attacked. Johansson and his men abandoned the bombarded Emma, successfully subdued the Alert's hostile crew, and navigated the ship to a small island where six of Johansson's men died. Locals in the article also mention that the Alert, a seedy and infamous vessel, had set sail rather quickly after an earthquake on March 1st. An increasingly panicked Thurston pieces together that the same earthquake that triggered Wilcox's dream also set the alert cruising toward some unholy destination. Thurston travels to New Zealand and finds Johansson's idol in a museum, where Thurston reevaluates its geologically foreign origins, considering old Castro's words about the stars. He then travels to Norway to interview Johansson directly, but finds out from his widow that he is dead. During a walk on a rough and narrow lane near the Gothenburg dock, a bundle of papers falling from an attic window had knocked him down. Two Lascar sailors at once helped him to his feet, but before the ambulance could reach him, he was dead. Thurston suspects he was possibly murdered. Johansson's widow gives Johansson's personal diary to Thurston, who reads it to learn that Johansson and his men had encountered an otherworldly monolith on the alert. Johansson's account describes a vast door on the monolith opening and a horrific creature lurching out to lay waste to the men, two of whom die of shock on the spot. Thurston reads further as Johansson describes frantically navigating the alert away from the island while Cthulhu pursued, with one other companion who eventually succumbs to madness and dies. Johansson only escapes by sharply U-turning the ship so that it strikes the beast causing an explosive cloud to shower over the ship and recede. Thurston fears that reading Johansson's diary has now made him a target of the Cthulhu cult. Following the mysterious circumstances of Johansson and Angel's deaths, he prays that he will not suffer a similar fate and begs the executor of his estate to conceal his own papers from the eyes of others. Cthulhu is horrifying and truly a being of nightmares. The open-source nature of the original mythos means it was born within the concept of others adding their own spin on it. Lovecraft's Cthulhu has inspired countless short stories, novels, video games, films, songs, and more, all created by writers and artists taking the core Cthulhu themes and putting their own twist into the canon of mythos. Lovecraft himself would never know the success and cultural impact this or any of his other works would have. When he died in 1937, he would only know that his works had reached a limited audience, never having made enough from his works to make a living as a writer. Yet over 90 years since he set out the plot of The Call of Cthulhu, the idea, themes, and the legendary creature has finally reached the mainstream. Most of us have heard of The Call of Cthulhu, in one form or another. Cthulhu has shown up in many different places. The Cthulhu universe, aka the Cthulhu mythos, can be seen referenced back as far as 1961 in the film Gorgo. But one of the earliest direct references to Cthulhu, outside of his mythos, 
is in the TV series, The Real Ghostbusters, with the episode being Season 2, Episode 41, The Collect Call of Cthulhu. The recreation of Cthulhu will continue for years as Cthulhu continues to show up in or have an influence on a multitude of other TV shows, films, novels, and games. Some of the more popular of things he has influenced are The Mist, The Cabin in the Woods, The Justice League, Star Trek, DC Comics, The Witcher series, and The Fallout series. Because of Cthulhu's appearance in all of these different places and times, he has been a big part of pop culture. People would grow up seeing and hearing works made with this monster in it that would leave people fearful but curious for more. Some of the more recent pop culture works he has been in and or influenced are The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, South Park, Supernatural, Robot Chicken, Stranger Things, Rick and Morty, Gravity Falls, The Elder Scrolls series, Resident Evil, even Grand Theft Auto V has a mask modeled after Cthulhu's head. The list is constantly growing, and there is no way to mention all his references. There are just too many. I found the cellar through a door in the large kitchen that opened to a winding stone staircase. The light flickered weakly when I flipped the switch. I hesitated before stepping into the dimly lit chasm as the thought of a giant mouth about to swallow me alive flitted through my mind. As I reached the bottom, I had to use my phone to light the way for fear that the darkness may swallow me up. It was enough to make me dizzy and almost lose my sense of balance. I scanned the walls for another light switch and found none. All that I could see was numerous rows of wine racks full of dust-covered bottles. Only one wall was bare, and as I made my way towards it, something swept across my face. I jumped, imagining the eight-legged creature that might be crawling somewhere upon my body, but laughed with relief when I realized I had bumped the dangling light switch. The light lit up the room just enough for me to make out my surroundings in better detail. I followed my brother's instruction and located the rack with the fewest bottles. Grabbing the edges, I gave it a tug, but it didn't budge. I tried the other side and still nothing happened. Then it occurred to me that a proper hidden door may go in instead of out to conceal any marks on the floor. I laid my phone down on a shelf and braced the rack with both hands and gave it a hard shove. The bottles rattled as the rack lurched backwards revealing another dark dank room. Goosebumps crawled up my neck as I entered the hidden chamber. There was no light switch in this room but instead I located an old hurricane lamp positioned on a cluttered desk. As I expected, the lamp was just enough to bring the creepy ambience of the room to life. It wasn't a large room, as it only contained the desk and a bookshelf. Not much more would have fit in there. The walls were covered with pictures and newspaper clippings, many of them about ships lost at sea under mysterious circumstances. Others were about earthquakes, and people going mad afterwards. I couldn't help but wonder what my brother had been studying and why he was compelled to keep it a secret. The desk was cluttered with papers, but what caught my attention was the wooden lockbox. It had to be the one described in his letter. Sliding it towards me, I positioned myself in the desk chair so that I could take a closer look at it. It was old, 
So old that if I couldn't find the key, I could probably just bust it open. I didn't want to resort to that in case there was something fragile inside. Suddenly I remembered the key in my pocket. It was a perfect fit. The box popped right open. The contents of the box were even more baffling than the clippings on the walls. There were pictures of statues, all very similar but different in size and grain. There were also pictures of people. Most were wearing dark cloaks with their faces hidden. One picture made my blood run cold. There were several cloaked figures standing around a fire, and in the flames you could clearly make out the body of a man, burning. I dropped the box when the realization of what I was seeing hit me. It landed on the floor, and with the pictures, a small statue fell out of the box. I reached down to pick it up, and the minute my skin made contact with it, a wave of nausea caused by a deep unknown dread washed over me. I had to sit back down in the chair to settle my strange unexplainable fear. Examining the statue, I felt like I was looking at something that had been created ages ago. It held an image carved into it of a creature that looked oddly part human and part octopus. But there was something else about it. It also looked reptilian. Beneath the carving of the creature was strange writing, letters like I had never seen before. They reminded me of Egyptian hieroglyphics. I was startled when I thought I heard the wine rack move behind me. I turned, just in time to see a dark figure entered the room, then was followed by another and another. Slowly they began to surround me. I opened my mouth to speak, but before I could form the first word, I felt a sudden sharp pain across the back of my head. The pain quickly turned to darkness. I never even felt my body hit the cold stone floor. I was caught in the most horrifying nightmare, and I couldn't make myself wake up. I was lying on the floor of a ship. My body felt as if it were being tossed around. I could hear shouting, and I could feel water prickling my face. I felt sick and disoriented. I tried to clear the fog in my head, but every time it began to clear, pain would rack my body and I would be consumed by darkness again. I thought that I must be dying. This dream seemed to go on for days in a sickening loop until finally it stopped. I began to wake, but I couldn't move. I shook my head in an attempt to get my bearings but the pain in my head was so intense that I began to gag. Everything became clear quickly once water was tossed on my face. My gagging turned to a coughing fit, but when I caught my breath, I was fully conscious. My heart began to race when I realized that my hands were tied behind my back. I looked around frantically trying to understand what was going on. I had no idea where I was at. I was laying on my side, and I could see the ocean in front of me. I was positioned on a large stone near the edge of a cliff. I turned to try to see behind me, but instead I saw several others also tied and laying across the large stone that I could now see was an altar. There was a woman, probably in her forties. She was gagged and crying. Next to her was an older man with graying hair. He was just staring off into space. I couldn't make out the others as well, 
for my head couldn't turn that far, but I could see from the corner of my eye that they were there. I was trying to free my hands when I heard the chanting, and I paused to listen as the sound grew closer. I began to see dark figures slowly marching up the hillside towards the altar. They made a line, and as they reached us, they formed a circle around their prisoners. The chanting grew louder and louder, until eventually it was drowned out by the crashing sound of water coming from the ocean. I jerked my head back, expecting to see a plane crashing into the water, or anything large enough to make that sound. But what I saw was the most unbelievable, terrifying sight that could be imagined. Something of gargantuan size was rising out of the water. At first it looked like a small island, and then it grew to look like a mountain. It just kept rising farther up, until finally I could make out a face. Not a face like I had ever seen before. This mountain-sized creature had tentacles all over its head. They were moving and writhing like giant snakes. Its body was almost human, except it was covered in scales. I realized then that we prisoners were the sacrifice, and I knew he was going to devour us. But it wasn't flesh and bones that he was hungry for. I began to hear a strange language humming through my brain. It wasn't a voice like any I had ever heard. It was almost calming. I felt my body relax, and I listened. I could hear a swooshing sound as my memories, my emotions, and my every thought slowly left me. This monster, demon or god, whatever it was, was devouring our souls. Thank you for listening to Freaky Folklore, the podcast about mankind's horrifying legends and myths. Don't forget to follow Freaky Folklore on Spotify and iTunes. If you can, leave the show an honest review on iTunes to help us grow. Freaky Folklore is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network, the home for listeners who love to feel scared. Go to EerieCast.com to find other terrifying podcasts such as Unexplained Encounters and Redwood Bureau. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to CarmenCarrion at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. Tune in next week as we discuss Hellhounds, the four-legged servants of hell. Until next time, stay safe out there, because this world is a strange one.